Hey everyone, Jeff here from besttechie.com and this is Techie Bytes episode 64. Today I'm speaking with Mata Segeti, co-founder and head of market development at Branch, a company that helps app developers increase customer acquisition, revenue, and engagement. We discuss the best ways to promote your app, whether or not you should spend time on app store optimization, and how to be a good corporate data citizen. Enjoy. I'm here with Mata Segeti, co-founder and leader of market development at Branch, a company that has built a deep link platform allowing uh, app developers like you see in the App Store on iOS and for Android to collect data about their customers and also to learn about how their customers use their products. So Mata, welcome. Thanks for being here. I'm really excited to have you on. Thanks, Jeff. Super excited to be here. Uh, doing well, um, being at home going a little crazy, living in Zoom, but things yeah. are good. Yeah, that's good to hear. I'm glad to hear. So the way we normally start off each episode, as uh, if you know, as our listeners know, and if you've, have, if you've ever listened to any of the other episodes, is that I love to ask about who you are a little bit, a little bit about who you are and what you do on a day-to-day -day basis uh, at, at Branch. Give us, give, us, give us a kind of a 30,000-foot view of that. Sure. Um, so... I'm Mada. I'm originally from Romania. Um, came to the States for college on a scholarship. Uh, what do I do at Branch? I think that's an interesting, my uh, role as a founder has evolved over the years. I started by leading and growing the marketing team. Uh, and recently I um, focused on being a lot more external. So thinking about trends in the market, doing public speaking, analyzing the market, uh, teaching, um, mobile customers in the market, how to grow, how to think about mobile. Um, and I'm also very involved in uh, defining and um, growing cultural branch. So that's my, my side job as a founder. Nice. That's, I feel like we've talked about culture in the past on this podcast. We've had on a number of people who have talked about how important it is um, to implement a, a good solid yeah. culture within the company. How, how, how are you thinking about that at Branch? And uh, what kind of steps are you taking to implement, you know, a, a, a very positive culture at the company? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I've always been focused on culture. And I think in the early days, it really started with our values. When it was just the four founders, we went into a room and we came up with our values. And as the company grew over time, we found that what we value in ourselves and people around us actually changed. So we, um, we, we are at the fifth iteration of our values. They're not different. They're not like hugely different from each other, but there are differences in the way, you know, I think, you know, we started with four people and now we have over 400 and the changes and um, how you implement values has grown significantly. And I think, you know, the past, I would say six months, I spent, I think I read seven books on culture. And I think uh, the last uh, kind of culture overview um, and, and, and reformatting I've done was a lot more um, thought out than before. So uh, if you think about culture as, you know, what people do and how to make decisions where there's little supervision, and that's the definition of culture, then you have all these tools to actually help people and actually define the expectations so they know how to behave, how to make decisions, what's more important. Um, and when I think about culture, I think about the tools we can actually 
once you define the values and, and we have actually two things, we have the values, which is the expectations of people, including ourselves. And then we have the branch way, which is the expectation of how the company should enable those people to thrive. Um, so on both those, there are things that we need to do to actually enable people to thrive in their environment and to know how to make decisions. So, you know, some of the tools at your disposal are how do you evaluate people? How do you make sure that when you do um, peer evaluations, manager evaluations, the questions there actually reflect your values and people are actually um, being evaluated on how they live up to these values. Uh, the other thing is, you know, how you do onboarding, for example. Like we used to start onboarding with, you know, teaching them about the company and the tools. And now we start very differently. Alex, our CEO, gives a really high overview of what is our mission, where are we going, what's our 10-year plan. And then I talk about, you know, the values and the expectations and like how do we live up these values every day. And um, and then throughout the week, it's a very organized first week of you learning about the company, what it means to work at Branch, what are the expectations. You know, other things are how everything in your office uh, and, and the things on your walls. I have this thing where nothing on our walls uh, can be just art. Everything has to have a meaning. The name of our rooms are is... Um, you know, failures in our past. And there's a little story next to every room with the story of how we failed and what we learned from it. Because part of our, one of our values is initiative and you can't take initiative unless you're okay failing, right? So, right. so those are just a lot. There's a well, lot of tools very passionate about it. No, I can tell and that's great because honestly, I thought that was a really fantastic answer and, and explanation of why you do what you do at Branch right now. And I think... One of the things you mentioned was uh, that I want to just kind of hone in on for a second was that onboarding process that you mentioned how you changed it from the way it used to be, and now you and now you have Alex, the CEO, explaining here's what the company here's here's why we kind of started the company here's here's where we're going with the company, and I think that's super important, especially for building a good culture uh, at, at any company because if you don't if a, if a new employee doesn't fully buy in right yeah. to to what the company's building then or and or a or even have the ability to fully understand what the company's building where they're where it's going what the plan is then how can they be an effective employee and how can they and and then they can't really buy into what you know what you're trying to get them to to do next yeah and i think that that's exactly right you know one of the uh favorite books i read about culture is uh daniel um I can't remember his last name, but it's called The Culture Code. Okay. And he said there are three things that you need to build a good group of people. And the first one is actually purpose and mission. Um, and then the other two are this idea of belonging and feeling like you belong to a team. And the last one is connectiveness, feeling you are connected to the team. So uh, those are like the three areas when I think about initiatives, like we, we try to put them in those areas. Definitely. I think... I could tell you're super passionate about this about culture, and I think that's great. And I feel like we I we should have you back to the whole have a whole other episode where we talk a lot about more about culture. But but right now I want to talk a little bit about branch and but more, uh, more generally, um, what deep linking is for those of us who aren't you know aware of what it is and what is it used for. I know I kind of gave a brief overview yeah. at the top of the show, but I'm sure you could do a much better job. <laughs> Okay, so, so I'm going to take you back in time 
to when the web was invented. And uh, let's think about the beginning of the web. And a few people came together and they said, how are people going to get web content? Let's create this HTTP protocol. And the HTTP protocol really thinks about, you know, every website is designed a certain way. And then you follow uh, an address and you actually get to a specific page. And every website, no matter who creates it, is built on this HTTP protocol. So you can think about the web uh, as a democracy where like, you can go and put the website up. Mobile is different. Um, mobile was introduced you know, when, when, when the phones came up and companies like Google and Apple created their whole um, systems on top of it. They are basically, in a way, recreating the web, but instead of a democracy, it is owned by them, by these platforms. And they are, uh, unfortunately for the user, they are pretty selfish. Apple wants everyone to use Apple, and Google wants everyone to use Android. So they did not come together, and they did not decide on a protocol that works the same for you know an Android device or an iOS device. So in the age of mobile, Content is actually a lot more hard to get to. Um, you will see that uh, if you want to send people to a specific piece of content inside your app, it's actually pretty complicated to do that because when someone clicks a link, uh, are they? You know, we don't know where they're going to open that link. Will they click that link on a desktop? Will they click that link? You know, um, on an Android device? Will they have the app? Will they not have the app? So this idea, deep linking at the core means actually taking someone to specific content within the app. That's kind of like the very basic definition. But the way we think about this at the higher level is actually think, getting someone to content no matter what and getting them to the right piece of content and to the right platform. So we know that apps engage much better than the web. So a lot of uh, mobile brands want to actually, when someone clicks on a link, if they have the app, they want the app to be open. But if they don't have the app, they want to actually take them to a website or get them to download the app. That routing and making sure that the routing always works on every platform or every device is the bread and butter of what we do. Basically, making sure that when you click on a link, you get to the intended content uh, on the web or inside an app. Right. So it's it's a very behind the scenes kind of thing, right? It's not something uh, that that, that consumer like me like me or someone who's listening to this episode will be like, oh, I you know I I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do deep linking unless you're actually building an app, you don't really have to think about it too much, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, the 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 interesting thing is that almost everyone has an it works app. well. <laughs> But uh, from a user perspective, yeah, you don't really know. Um, most of our most of our big customers actually white label our links, so you wouldn't even know. But mm -hmm. if you ever see something that app that link, we, we are that's like our free um, subdomain. If you are not uh, one of our uh, bigger customers that decides to to do, but yes, as a, from a user perspective, you only notice this when it's not working. When it's working, you think you don't think about it. Actually, you don't realize that there's someone behind the scenes making it work well. Right. So, so, uh, so I, I mean, I've, uh, when I built an app, I had, I, we had implemented deep linking, uh, within the app to, um, and it's a very useful thing to be able to do. Um, for, and, and, and in my case, we had an app called shout where essentially you could save content to a different type of like playlist, if you will, or, um, kind of list where you could invite your friends to, and you can share what you're saving with each other. 
And essentially, so we, we, we had it so if you sent a link to someone to uh, to the app, it would then prompt you to download the app and bring you to that particular list. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. That's exactly right. That's We call that the third deep linking. So this idea that you take someone to the same list, even though they might have to download the app first. Right. So in terms of in terms of deep linking, you've built this whole business around it. One of the things that um, you know that 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 branch and and you are very familiar with, obviously having been in this space for quite some time now, is the uh, how how these different app stores like Apple's and Google's um, were, have 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 made uh, changes so that way it's e- they well their their goal is to make it easier for you to be found you know discovery. And one of those things is uh, that, that, that's talked about a lot is app store optimization, right? Yeah. And I was curious if you had any best tips or practices uh, that, when it comes to this kind of app store optimization that people who are creating apps should be thinking about when submitting them. So it's really interesting. I actually um, don't fully believe in app store optimization. I think that you might say that the app stores have tried to make it easier for apps to be on, but I actually think it's becoming harder and harder to find apps over time. 90% of searches in the app stores are actually um, branded, meaning people are looking for specific apps. And now the app stores are actually selling ads against your brand. So even though someone might be looking for you now, someone can even steal that traffic. So I actually, um, my advice is the opposite. It's actually don't worry too much about app store optimization and think about other ways to promote your app. And I actually think the best way is to do uh, SEO and web optimization and then convert those users into the app. Um, You can do that through writing interesting content to having a landing page for your app that's really well optimized. Um, I actually think that those can actually lead to a lot more downloads um, and then actually just going in and optimizing the app store where the search, people don't really search in the app store for like delivery or things like that. They usually search for specific names, but they might go on Google and search for things like get food and like that. And if you can actually optimize for that, and even when it comes to ads, like I, we've done these analysis where if you, uh, it is, it's actually much cheaper to buy web ads and then use banners to convert those people into your app than to buy app installs that have like skyrocketed over the past few years. Uh, obviously, it really does depend on you know your app and if you have a game actually promoting your game on Facebook, maybe it is well, but if it, it might work well, but. If you are a different, if you are like a functionality app, if you have interesting content that you can write, I actually, I would invest that time in web optimization and then use like uh, banners and other ways to take that traffic and convert it into app traffic. Gotcha. That's, that seems like good advice to me. And based on my experience having uh, released apps into the App Store, I, I, I tend to agree with that actually in the sense that we spent some time on App Store optimization trying to think about you know how how we would phrase things. You know uh, what what would go first, or how we would put, how would our what our title would be in the app store versus you know what the app's actual name is and things like that. We spent some time on that, but again, like you said, most of our efforts were online in terms of trying to get people um, to to find the content and then find and then convert them into app users. 
um, from that. Ha I'm curious if you have any thoughts about uh, companies that, that, that let you kind of advertise in-app as well as in addition to just, you know, doing web uh, optimization. Um, do you find those to be effective ways for developers to increase downloads or installs or no? No, no I don't think so. Uh, I mean, we, we look at, there are a lot of these ad networks, but if you um, if you look overall or where most of the traffic and what's driving most of the install is still the big networks like Facebook, Google, um, Apple search ads. Um, I actually, I know, and, and I've seen less and less of, a, of the in-app ads. Um, I know they're still pretty used in gaming. Um, but even then, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I wouldn't, I actually think, the type of users that you get from those ads are usually the type of users who, you know, I play a lot of mobile games um, and usually I get extra gems or something if I like watch ads. Uh, and so the type of, I don't never do, I actually just pay to get my gems. And the type of users that you get through those, you might, I don't think they're the users who convert because they don't have enough money to pay for gems. So they, uh, you might get them to like, download, you know, they look at other games and things like that. So those are very much the lower level user. Um, and I think when companies look at conversions and when you track actually conversions over time, those are those type of um, ads actually do a lot, don't do as well as like the actual direct install ads where you can actually target people who can spend more and convert better in your app. And there's also a lot of fraud with those networks. Um, we have a whole fraud uh, solution and, and, and it is focused on, on those versus, you know, there's almost little to no fraud in like the bigger networks. They're obviously cheaper. So if you're just looking at installs, I mean, you can buy installs through them, but I, you should never just look at installs. You should always look at conversion past the install and, 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 and like the actual ROI per uh, user that you buy by, um, by channel. So I am not, uh, you know, I personally, I don't uh, believe in those. What I do believe in, though, is finding apps that you can partner with and build really strong partnerships. So so in some way, there are in-app ads, but they're not actually ads, but they're actually a promotion of someone. So, you know, I remember I have I have a bunch of examples of these, but I remember there was a really interesting one between ways. Um, which is the mapping app and Spot Hero, which is a parking app. And they had a partnership where like Spot Hero would actually pay ways for new new customers. But if you were like going to a specific location, you would get a little pop-up saying, do you want parking here? You know, use, use Spot Hero to find parking. Um, there was another one between Yumly and Instacart where if you were like in Yumly and getting a recipe, like you could actually add all the things in the recipe to your cart and Instacart. So these kind of these kinds of like finding the people that you can build a BD partnership where you might be paying them for installs, but they're actually super like they're they're installs of people who actually need your service. Um, those I think work much better than just like you know buying buying installs. Those are harder to do. Those partnerships, you know, it's much harder to do something like that than to just go and buy installs from an ad network. But those right. are the ones that are going to like help your company grow, and those are going to the conversions going to be much higher, etc. Right, and, and and in those cases, even though you're paying uh, per the per install, you that you know you're you're likely making more on exactly. that user than other you know than 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 uh, than losing money on just getting an install. Exactly, um, which which is smart, and like you said, uh, you know those kind of BD you know relationships where 
where where you can partner up with another company who who has a similar um, you know or, or an overlapping kind of service where where you know like spot like you mentioned spot here on ways that's a great example and the yumly one and instacart also a good one um makes it makes it it just makes it it just makes makes sense right it's it's an ultimately uh, while harder to do it requires a little bit of manpower to go out and make those deals happen but if you're in a if you both if there you know you can still do this at a lower level if you're two independent developers who 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 may benefit from one another uh, from partnering? Uh, yeah, exactly. Definitely. So you mentioned um, uh, tracking ROI, and I th- and I'm curious if you have any uh, stats or have any st- or data or information about the best performing acquisition channels um, in terms of ROI or. Yes, uh, I met- do. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and they're not what you think they are. Um, oh. I'm not going to um, talk about that network specifically. I think we're trying to publish a study on that. But we did look at like organic versus ads, acquisition channel and conversions around them. Um, and the really interesting thing is referrals and sharing. So, you know, when you use branch, you can use branch in all channels. So you can use branch in your ads. You can use branch in your emails. You can use branch in like your web to web banners uh, and any user to user sharing. So the links that get created by users in sharing referrals are um, a different type of link because they actually uh, you can actually understand which user created that link and give a personalized experience. So we looked at all our links uh, and and we compared links that were created by users versus links that were, you know, in any other channel, email, marketing links, anything. And the conversion uh, of, of links that came from user is actually much higher overall. And it, we, don't, we didn't even look, some of them had rewards associated with them. Some of them were just simple user sharing links. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the conversion was, I think, almost double. I, I have the actual wow. numbers I can share with you. Um, and, and, you know, I thought a lot about why that is. And there's this like uh, fog behavior model that says that if you're trying to convince someone to do something, you have you're two levels to do it. <laughs> you basically like you have higher motivation or make it easy. Right. So yeah. I think our links, then those links actually fit both. One is like the motivation is higher because it comes from a friend. But also because there are like links that take you to content and we've like really enabled those links to work well, like it also is simpler. There's like less hurdles. So overall, um, we've seen that convert very high. And then the other thing that converts very high also is uh, when people come from your website into the app. So banners convert much higher than ads as well. Your own web banners on your own website. I mean, that makes a lot of sense because those people are already somewhat engaged with your website and they choose to actually download the app. But that is also, I think, almost double the conversion that you actually see um, in uh, the the conversion that you see in ads. So... um, so those I think would be really interesting if you're already not, if you're not, of course, both of them are harder than ads, right? The ads can be pretty simple to do versus going and implementing banners. And with banners, like if you actually go and personalize the banners and show people different things, depending on how engaged they are, we actually saw 5x 
um, increase in click to um, view to click ratio from from the companies that actually personalize banners and and did a lot to actually think about user journey and show empathy and show them the right banner at the right time versus people who have just one small banner everywhere. Um, so th those I would say are um, some channels that uh, you should definitely as a company think about and put time in, especially now. Like this is a time um, during COVID like cash is king and to survive in this in this period you need to conserve your resources yeah. so this is the time to like move away from spending a lot to these organic channels that are much harder to build but actually might have much higher conversion or retention overall definitely i i look i i have always found that um having your own kind of channel and and uh, and building that into a way to convert people to an app or to a, a product or whatever always works out a lot better uh, than, you know, than simply just kind of throwing up advertising in app or elsewhere. Uh, because, because, you know, A, uh, if you can, like you said, if you get people to your platform, your site, whatever, uh, they're already engaged with, they're there for some reason, right? And if you can create a personalized experience that, allow, that, that entices them to want to download the app, um, even better, uh, and that can be done through content, through banners, and content, uh, various different ways, like you pointed out. Yeah. So I want to shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about uh, GDPR, which uh, which is uh, the 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 Privacy Protection Act that was uh, uh, released throughout the EU and Europe. And I'm curious. From Branch's perspective, how, uh, if at all, it's affected your business and also what your thoughts are on GDPR just in general? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, I, I, I think in, in some ways um, we are there helping um, companies understand their users and their user journey. And we actually don't store, collect uh, any kind of personal data about the user. The way we make our matching, it's something called um, pers a persona. But while a persona, you might think, oh, you know, like we have data about these people. We actually have a persona uh, from a branch perspective is uh, actually just tying cookies uh, and advertising IDs together for from a user and device. So... Um, but we don't know anything about the user. We don't right, know so where they not, are. It's not personally identifiable information. No. And both cookies, cookies is something that the user can completely stop. So if you know if they stop using cookies, like we don't, uh, we don't use that, and we go back to fingerprinting and actually just guessing. Um, and uh, the IDFA is also something. Uh, the advertiser ID is also something that a user can actually prevent. Uh, from uh, companies from using. So all of these, none of these are identifiable. All of them are resettable. All of them are things that the user can completely uh, block if they want to. Obviously, if they do, they will uh, have uh, a worse experience. We might not take them to the exact content, uh, etc. So, uh, so, so I think from a user usability perspective, like we don't use any personalizable, identifiable data. Uh, and we only use things that you can reset and retract. Um, and so GDPR didn't like really impact us that much. We did have to make changes 
to um, our SDKs to make sure that our um, if if someone like sends one of our customers, you know, the right to be forgotten, they can actually send us a note, and we can delete uh, that um, the persona from our database. So we we built tools to help all our customers comply to GDPR, and that was like um, a really interesting effort, and I think a great effort. Um, from our perspective to help dev, to help our customers make sure uh, that that they comply to GDPR. Uh, and I think when it comes to privacy, you know, we are, we've always, we think that there's a way to be a good data citizen. I think data can be such a dirty word, but if you use data right and you don't, you know, you don't resell it, you don't like actually use, you don't collect data about a user that can be used to um, sell them things or, or, or for bad purposes. Uh, I think data in the way it can be used to actually give people better user experience. So we have like three privacy principles. One is that we limit the data that we collect and we, um, we only collect data that's necessary to build a good user experience. And in any cases, in any cases where we let's say, use uh, an IP, IP address to make a match, then we delete the IP address. We don't actually store any kind of information about the user um, that's identifiable in any way. Um, we don't collect any information such as name, email, addresses, physical addresses, not, nothing like that. Um, and then we only provide companies with data about the actual end user activity on your apps and websites. So meaning, you know, we we have activity on like, let's say specific apps, but you don't, you can't actually use that information in your app. You can only use the information on users visiting your websites and your app. And we help you tie, you know, this is the same user that visited, you know, your uh, website in Safari browser versus Twitter browser versus Facebook browser, but only your website. Uh, and we do not rent or sell personal data in any way. So that's another um, big thing for us. We don't resell the data to anyone. We don't rent it. You know, we're not one of those companies that like uses our data to um, help big user graphs or anything like that. So no one has access to the data except our customers and only for the users visiting their own like websites or apps. Gotcha. That makes sense. I feel like um, I feel like that's a you know potentially. Not not being able to share the data with other companies, obviously, while a great privacy um, initiative, th th is that something that you got uh, concerns you about in terms of being able to build another line of business, or is it just not something you're interested in doing at all? I mean, I would say that there's so many people emailing us wanting to use our data. Um, yeah. <laughs> we we could definitely make a lot of money on the side through this, um, but. I don't think that that's, that would be the right uh, business decision. So uh, I, I'm reading this book um, and I'm loving it. Uh, I'm actually listening to it on my solo walks and it's called The Infinite Game. And what I love about this book is that, it, you know, it talks about uh, two types of games. There's this finite games that you play where you want to win. And, uh, you, you know, chess is a finite game or football or basketball where you have set of rules and players. And then you have this infinite games where uh, you have a cause and you are trying to advance your cause. And business and life are infinite games. There's no yeah. way of winning. You can just kind of drop out. And, and, if, if you, and why are you playing the game? Are you, you know, I built Branch in the early days because I really believe in, like, making mobile more democratic. And... 
you know, selling data and making money in the short term uh, might help us if this was a finite game. But if we're in it and we are in it for the long term and building a better uh, environment for mobile, selling that data to make money in the short term will not help us, uh, uh, you know, to to advance our cause. Um, and uh, it, w- it won't build us the trust of our customers. And so, you know, in our, in our privacy policy, in our term and conditions, it's very clear that we don't sell data. It's a part of our contracts. And I think it gives people, um, it helps us build trust so we can build um, an actual, uh, build tools and build an ecosystem where, you know, they can build better mobile companies and be discovered and, and get customers. So, so, so it wasn't actually, it was never a hard decision where we get those emails, we don't even like consider them, even if it mm-hmm. is a lot of money in some cases. Right. It, I mean, I guess it all comes back to those values that you talked about earlier in the in the episode, right? It's the it's all about the values of the company and and, and you got and your and you and your co-founders that that wrote them out and and came up with these uh, these 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 values essentially that this is what we're going to live by. This is why we're doing this, and um, this is how we're going to conduct business essentially. And I feel like I feel like that's really great because I feel oftentimes sometimes I I think. It, you can, as business grows, you kind of sometimes founders get a little lost in the shuffle. They're like, "Oh, we can do this, this, and this," and they don't. They lose a little bit of focus along the way, and they might make a decision that otherwise they might they they otherwise wouldn't. Well, I think it's just like capitalism, and I and I love that this book talks talks about it. It's like, I think the way capitalism was invented in the early days, it was the idea that every company has a just cause and it goes after the just cause. But um, in, in, in most of those companies were were private. And now I think with the markets, there's so much like the definition of capitalism has changed to like making the most money possible. Right. And right. I'm not a fan of that, right? Like I, I believe in companies that can build things because they want to make the world better and they want to do their part. And making money is just like something you do in the process. But the the, the cause and the 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 mission of your company is not to make money; is to actually, you know, actually make a change in the world. And I think many founders, uh, and I think actually many founders lose their way not because of them. I think it's actually the pressure that the markets and investors can sometimes put on you as a founder can kind of like derail you from the cause that you initially started and had to build a company. And I think, you know, this is having the right founders, having the right investors, which we are very lucky to have, um, can actually help you stay, uh, stay on course with your uh, long-term cause and making sure that like you continue to go towards it versus I think investors that, you know, are worried about, very short-term gains are um, probably the not, not not the right investors to bring in your company. Definitely, I think I think a good I mean a, a, an example of what we're talking about essentially could be when WhatsApp uh, was sold to Facebook for what like nineteen billion dollars or something. And, yeah. Um, I mean that's a hard number to turn down if you're the WhatsApp founders. Meanwhile, the, they ended up having to leave Facebook um, shortly thereafter, within a year or so. Uh, because, because yeah go ahead no because of the mission because they left yeah. because facebook needed to make money and like they started compromising their original mission so eventually um 
and I think it's hard. It's hard for every founder when you get nine, ten billion in front of you uh, to say, no, I'm going to stay true to course. And, you know, the best companies, um, you know, I'm think I think about like companies like Patagonia who have stayed private and can like continue to do things where they're not a they are a for profit organization, but they still think about the, um, the bigger picture. And I think. You know, it's our it's our job as founders to continue to stay on course and to think about other ways that we can help. So, you know, I, I signed something called the Founder Pledge, which um, means that I'm going to give a percentage of everything, anything I make from branch um, to charity. And it's actually a legally binding contract. So for me, it's like I'm trying to help by both making sure that branch has a cause that can help the mobile industry and personally that anything I make um, I can help in, in areas that um, maybe branch can't help, right? Like we're a mobile company, but there's so many other areas in the world that I want to help. So I think pledging that is like a way for me, for my own personal uh, social responsibility. Mm-hmm. I love it. That's great. I want to talk. Uh, I want to talk about push notifications, which <laughs> I just got one of. <laughs> um, something I'm sure uh, that that branch processes a ton of every day. Um, links from push notifications and and things like Mm -hmm. that. In your opinion, these days, how effective are push notifications? Are like, are people tapping on them? Or are they just kind of looking at them and not? People are tapping on them, uh, for sure. I think the really important thing to think about push notifications is to make them contextual. People don't want push notifications. They just tell them we have a sale going on or like then it's just like if you are actually communicating something that is relevant to the user, then have push notifications, right? Like I I click on my Slack push notifications all the time. I click on my DoorDash push notifications when I know my, my delivery is on the way. I click on my Instacart push notifications. Um, I, I think those are the ones that you can do as many as necessary and then allowing the user to set that with those software is incredibly important. I do think that you can do other type of promotions, but you have to be incredibly careful when to do it, how to do it, and have empathy. Um, I think think I think you know going and having a sale every week and sending push notifications about sales uh, can be incredibly annoying. Um, I think thinking about the timing, you know, like sending things to the middle of the night, some people like get sounds with push notifications and things like that. Some people don't mute their phones. So I think uh, I've definitely seen a trend of, I get a lot less push notifications that are announcing sales and things like that, uh, than I used to. Um, but they do happen once in a while, right? Like I'm a huge Sephora customer. And once in a while, they'll send me push notifications telling me they have like some really exclusive things that only I can get if I go in the next few hours or concerts for it or tickets for a concert for something I sign up for. And those are the type of, of, of notifications that actually I click on and sometimes end up buying from them. Um, but overall, I think you have to be um, incredibly careful how to how you do it. Do you think that there, like, I mean, a lot of, I get a lot from news organizations and I feel like sometimes I get a lot of the same one, like the same type of story. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, any not, tips? Yeah. I don't have as many. I mean, we actually have a lot of news companies using us and I haven't looked at the data. 
uh, so I don't know uh, that much about it. Um, do you, do you that... have any? Do you have any insights in terms of like what, like the mat, like if if you're gonna send multiple push notifications in a day, is there is there an amount that that that's a magic number, or is it you know as long as I... it's as long as it's as long as it's relevant to yeah uh, whatever you were doing in the app? Yeah. I don't. I mean, we we power the links behind some of them, but I don't think like it's a big. Um, while we we help companies do this, I would say probably some of our partners who actually are the people sending the push notifications have more insights into this. Um, so I wouldn't. I think we've looked at like what are what are the best ways to link from these, but I would say our our partners would probably be better at answering that question. Fair enough. I, I think that I think that uh, I think that's a that's a good answer um you know consider considering the data at your disposal at your disposal um last question i have for you before we get to the lightning round obviously you work with a lot of different partner companies who some some of them have some of the biggest apps in the world um from a personal or professional do you have any uh thoughts in terms of what makes an app successful Yeah, uh, I've thought a lot about this. Um, there's a few things. One, I think usability makes a huge difference. Uh, and the little things, making sure you think about your entire user experience. Uh, I in recently interviewed the person who is in charge of mobile for the Fills app. And everyone is obsessed with the Fills app. So she was talking a lot about how she like tried to recreate the experience you get in store in the app. And, and, and it was just such an interesting, like it was very obvious that this person was obsessed with the Phil's brand and was trying to create the, even the tiniest things like seeing your barista's face before you actually, you know, go and pick up your coffee and things like that. The little things are, are what make this app really good and making sure that like the user flow, everything is like perfect. So this obsession with, um, with the experience of the app uh, makes a ton of sense. And I think the other one is really like empathy for the user and understanding, you know, when are they using the app? What is different when they use the app versus the website? Um, you know, what what is like, when are, where are they? Who are they? All of those things. And actually customizing and giving personalized flows depending on who you are, time of the day, things like that. Um, I think those are like the, the best apps uh, from my perspective. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, sometimes you'll see, and I think apps that like build engagement, right? Like if we're to think about like Snapchat and Instagram and all of that, it really is about like building like really great experiences, but also really great user user um, user engagement. And I think the patience of users today is not what it used to be. I think you get annoyed. I um, I was trying to get my delivery last night for my um, uh, for my laundry. And I remember going into this app that I use all the time and it said, oh, the next delivery is on the 12th of April. And I was like, what? Holy crap. <laughs> and found another delivery app that came last night and picked up my stuff and like they lost me forever i'm gonna like never use them again i'm gonna use a new app because <laughs> of that like experience or you know prime now i was trying to like go and do pickup from whole foods and like it just like they, they had a broken flow 
And it kept saying, oh, you have to remove these things from your card, but I couldn't remove them. And I got so frustrated. I'm like, I'm done. I'm going to use Instacart. And I like went and used Instacart. And like now I have deliveries coming from Instacart. And that was just like, I think the, the um, having one broken flow can really mean like someone will go and find something else to do and you can lose them as a customer. So the, I think the companies and services who are obsessive about um, their supply chain, their flows and giving people like understanding that people have so little patience these days are the ones that are like succeeding in the market in general. And especially now when like things are really rough and this mm-hmm. is, you know, I like to think about there's this like theory of uh, Schumpeter, who's an economist that's not like that famous, but uh, he's one of my favorites. And he talks about the, 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 the time to build innovation is when things are deconstructed. And the only way you can actually take society, a company to the next level is if you can actually convince them, if you can actually like break something down, like, um, you know, particles and humans always go for order and they try to look order. And the more you get towards order, the more, the less energy you have. Um, and then particles start like, you know, like let's say you put them and you apply pressure and they're like all crazy. And then they like, as, as they go towards order, their energy becomes lower. And I think that's true with society. And I think right now we are in a period where all of that is turned around and there's a lot of chaos. So actually from this from this like chaos and hard times, there's going to be a lot of innovation uh, in medicine uh, and in a lot of areas. But it can be, I think, it can mean innovation in mobile. It can mean innovation in your app. It can mean it can mean you like, you know, surpassing competitors. So this is, I think, a really interesting time to take advantage of that. I, I definitely agree with that. I, I feel like, and I I, want, I I just want to highlight that point you made about when an app doesn't work or or the flow or the usability or the ux ui whatever it's just it's just not on point with with other apps today like you mentioned consumers just they don't have the patience because the qual the bar for app quality has been set very high by other by other companies if your app doesn't meet those standards it's it's rough but it's it's true you have to make sure your app can meet those quality standards that, that, that users, customers have come to expect. Agreed. I, I completely agree with you on that one. Nice. So on that note, let's make, let's, uh, let's move on to the lightning round. Mata, whenever you're ready, you let me know and we'll get started. Okay. I'm ready. Good? All right, here we go. If you could shop for free at one store, which one would you choose? Sephora. Nice. I like that choice. I bet my wife would like that choice. <laughs> um, how much time? How much time do you spend per day uh, on social media? Uh, thirty minutes personal, and another thirty minutes probably for work. Nice. Do you play any instruments? And if so, which? No, I do you don't. Have any I... Do you have any instruments that you would want to maybe learn how to play one day? Or interest you? I have no musical thing. I would love to play the <laughs> piano. Okay? Piano. Nice. Okay. Well, you can work towards that. La- uh, second uh, second to last question. If animals could talk, which one would be the most annoying? Wow. Uh, <laughs> I guess a parrot or a bird. Parrot, parrot or a bird. Yeah, that, I could see that. Like very high, kind of high-pitched voices, kind of squeaky. Yeah. 
<laughs> I think maybe a horse could kind of be an annoying. Like if it could talk, it would maybe be annoying. Maybe a maybe. dog. <laughs> no, I want my dog to talk. They're so excitable and they love would, you. They I, just I would say, love, oh, a, they love to have a dog to talk to. Scooby Doo, where are you? Last one. <laughs> <laughs> what word do you always misspell? I don't know on that one. Are you an maybe. excellent speller? I'm not. I always type <laughs> wrong. I'm like. I learned how to type. I grew up super poor and I didn't have a computer until like college and like I learned how to, I, I still type with two fingers and I, you know, I'm English is not my first language. So, yeah. Well, you made it through the lightning round. So that's good. Uh, if anyone wants to get in touch with you after listening with, to this podcast, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I'm on Twitter at Mada299. My mom picked that for me. I know it's weird. Uh, <laughs> Can't and argue with mom. I know. I know. <laughs> I think it was the ICQ that she created for me when I was, in, when I was going to college in the States. And then uh, my um, Mada at branch.io. Uh, it's my Great. email. So you can find Excellent. me there. Well, Mada, thanks again for being on. I really enjoyed uh, having you. And uh, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks. This was super fun. Thanks for listening to Techie Bites. Stay tuned for more episodes every Tuesday with awesome interviews and conversations about technology and business. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting the podcast at anchor.fm slash besttechie and or by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Both ways help us greatly and are much appreciated. So thank you. Until next time, we'll see you. And remember, remember, take care of your computers.